0: Good morning. The title of this morning's message is Change in Priesthood, Change in Law. The last time I ministered, we began to take a look at the differences between the Old Covenant priesthood and its high priests, and the New Covenant priesthood and its high priest, which of course is Jesus. And as we saw last time, the author of Hebrews undertakes the challenge of proving from the Old Testament scriptures that in every way possible, Jesus is better. <laughs> he's far better than what the Levitical priesthood previously had to offer. For starters, Jesus is God's son. He is the, o- the one and only son of God that the scriptures foretold would come. And he's equal to God the Father in power and authority. And he sits at our Heavenly Father's very own right hand, ruling and reigning in and through the lives of believers. There isn't anyone better than Jesus to fill the role of our high priest. He was and is fully human. That's really mind-boggling. Jesus is human (laughs) and fully God simultaneously. And he's perfectly human and perfectly God. He cannot misrepresent us to the Father, nor can he misrepresent the Father to us. Jesus is what the Father looks like. So he is the only person in all of history who could actually fulfill the qualifications of being our true high priest in the order of Melchizedek, because he perfectly represents us to the Father, and he perfectly represents the Father to us. That was the role of a high priest. They were to represent us to the Father and the Father to us. Jesus is the only one who could do it perfectly. And it was our Heavenly Father who declared and swore an oath regarding Christ's priesthood in Psalms 110, specifically verse 4, but I've included verses 1 through 3 so that we can see that the Father had also revealed Jesus' true identity as God. Verse 1, Psalm 110. A Psalm of David, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In Hebrew, this actually says, Yahweh said to Adonai. In other words, God senior was talking to God junior. (laughs) And he told God junior for him to sit or be enthroned at his very own right hand because the father would put all of his enemies under his feet verse 2 the lord shall send the rod of thy strength and he's talking about christ out of zion rule thou in the midst of thine enemies i like this verse because it shows how god really works in the midst god doesn't go around making people do what he wants them to do. Sometimes I wish he would, (laughs) but he won't. (laughs) But he's always at work in the midst of every situation for his kids. He's always at work on our behalf in whatever situation we find ourselves. And he's in the business of bringing forth his victory. Verse 3. The people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Poetic language is often difficult to understand. (laughs) What are you saying? (laughs) I consulted several commentaries to try to understand what the psalmist was trying to say. And so according to those who know better, this probably refers to the believers in Messiah who would freely give themselves into Adonai's service, adorned, robed with holiness, and Eternal life. And according to the scholars, the dew probably is a reference to the amount of Messiah's believers who would possess his life. Like when God told Abraham that his descendants would be more than the grains of sand on the earth. So it's the same kind of thing. Here it would be impossible to count all the dew drops on the face of the earth. That's the point. And then finally, verse 4 The Lord hath sworn. And will not repent. In other words, he won't change his mind. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, the thou in this sentence refers to Adonai in the first verse. Yahweh Jr. (laughs) So the author of Hebrews uses this scripture to prove to the Hebrews that he was writing to that their own scriptures foretold that Adonai would be God's son and that he would sit at the Father's right hand, and that he would be an eternal priest of a completely different order, one without beginning and without end. Now, the Jews didn't really understand that, but they knew this had to do with Messiah. That's really probably all they really understood about it. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalms 110 several times, and we're going to take a look at one of those occurrences to see just how different Jesus is and better than the Levitical priesthood. Because the writer of Hebrews is trying to persuade his readers that there's no reason for a believer in Jesus to go back under the Levitical priesthood and its laws. You would think this would be a message just for them, but this is the message the Church of Jesus Christ needs to hear too. (laughs) There's no reason for us to go back to the way they did things in the Old Covenant. In chapter 5 of Hebrews, I'll begin with with verse 5 and read through to verse 10. I have it for you in the Passion Translation, and it says this. So also Christ was not self-appointed and did not glorify himself by becoming a high priest. But God called and glorified him. For the Father said to him, You are my favored son. Today I have fathered you. And in another scripture, he says about the new priestly order, you are a priest like Melchizedek, a king priest forever. During Christ's days on the earth, he pleaded with God, praying with passion and with tearful agony that God would spare him from or out of death. And because of his perfect devotion, his prayer was answered and he was delivered. In these scriptures, we know he's referring to The night before Christ was crucified. And he's talking about how Christ implored the Father to save him. And I like this, out of. In the Greek, it means out of death. Not from going through, but out of. (laughs) That's the prayer that was answered. (laughs) I don't believe Jesus was struggling with dying when he was imploring the Father to save him out of death. Lazarus died (laughs) And Jesus raised him up. So Jesus wasn't afraid that he wouldn't raise again. So what was he struggling with? So he wasn't struggling with dying and he wasn't struggling with being raised because he knew dying is easy and God can raise me up just like I raised up Lazarus. But I think Jesus was going to do something that had never been done before (laughs) and that would never need to be repeated. He had volunteered to become the very Lamb of God who would carry the sin of all mankind into death. And not just any death, but the death of the cross. An extremely painful and shameful death. He didn't die like a sweet little lamb on an altar. Nope. He died like the worst of criminals for all the crimes of mankind. And I think the issue may have been that he knew he wasn't strong enough in his own humanity to go through the following day's events and not call 12 legions of angels to come and help him and rescue him. That was the hard part. Jesus had the power to stop it. He could have told the Father the night before, let's go with plan B. (laughs) Obviously, the Father said, no, not my will. And that's when Jesus said, your will be done. But he had to be willing to stay on the cross as a human being, enduring all of that pain, all of that shame, all of that scorn, and do nothing about it when he had the power to do everything about it. That's the hard part. He needed the power to stay on the cross when everything in his natural man would have said, put a stop to this right here, right now. You don't deserve it. He was right. So in response to his prayer, the father sent him an angel to minister to him and to strengthen him. He needed to be strengthened that he could do this in his humanity. Because he left all of his royal prerogatives in heaven. He is the equivalent of what we are now. A human being filled with God. Anointed by the Holy Spirit and in the Holy Spirit. Jesus had to walk out as the prototype, the same kind of things that we have to walk out and walk through now. Reading Hebrews verse 8. But even though he was a wonderful son, he learned to listen and obey through all his sufferings. I am personally not a fan of the English word obey. But not because I'm not in favor of obedience. (laughs) But because our English word obey really doesn't express what the Greek word actually means. According to the Strong's Concordance, the word translated as obey literally means to hear under as a subordinate. That is to listen attentively by implication to heed or conform to a command or authority. It means to hearken, it can be translated to be obedient to, and it is often translated obey. What I like is, it has more to do with listening than it does to do with doing. (laughs) To me, the English word obey implies the idea of just do it (laughs) or you'll be sorry. At least that's the way it worked with my mom. (laughs) Just do it or you'll be sorry. (laughs) And that's not God's heart. So many Christians read the word and they think, I have to obey all these commands. And God's saying, just do it or you'll be sorry. No, (laughs) that's not what God wants. That's not what this word actually means. It means to listen attentively. Now that makes a lot more sense when we realize that when we listen attentively, what happens is faith comes. How does faith come? By hearing, and by hearing, (laughs) faith comes by hearing the word of God, the word of Christ. And in the Greek, it actually says the word of Christ, and that matters. Because if I read the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and I think all of that applies to me, is faith going to come? No. Condemnation will come, because that's what the law is designed to do. Let me show you how bad you are. <laughs> that's no help. <laughs> new covenant, much better. <laughs> the new covenant is all about faith. So when we understand that Jesus had to believe his father, that he in himself could actually go through the cross in just his humanity, anointed with the Holy Spirit. It's the word of God to him that gave him the ability to believe, to receive, and to rest. To receive the strength that he would need to finish his destiny. So what looks like obedience is actually faith or trust in action. It isn't doing something because the Father said so. It is instead doing something because we believe that our Father is the one who told us to do that specific thing, just like with Jesus. And if we know he only ever wants good for us, and we know we can trust him, (laughs) that's when we can act on what he tells us to do. In other words, faith comes first. And when faith comes, we act on that faith, and it looks like obedience. (laughs) That's what Jesus did. It is all about hearing the Father hearing what the Lord is saying, and then acting on what he says. It isn't a do this or you'll be sorry. So Jesus learned by experience to trust his father in the midst of untold pain and suffering. And that is always the hardest place to trust. Is when your natural man says, run for the hills. (laughs) Get out of here, don't do this. he didn't try to avoid the pain and he didn't try to get out from underneath the pain he didn't even ask for an aspirin <laughs> he endured the pain because he knew it was the father's will and his destiny we can do anything he calls us to do because he gives us the strength and the power to do it verse 9 you have hebrews 5 and after being proven perfect in this way, he has now become the source of eternal salvation to all those who listen to him and obey. Again, don't think. <laughs> this is a, a commandment that God is stopping his foot at you. Believe what you hear. Listen to him and believe. That's actually what the Greek is trying to say. Listen to him and believe what you hear him saying. And if you believe what you hear him saying, you'll be divinely enabled to do that which he calls you to do. Those who listen attentively and believe what he says to them are the ones that are doing that which is pleasing him because it's about faith. We don't even have to do it perfectly. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Go preach, girl. Are you sure about this? (laughs) don't have to do it perfectly just in faith (laughs) so Jesus was proven perfect and complete through his death burial and resurrection and what he suffered and all of that is what actually made him ready to be our high priest eternally Jesus had to experience the worst of the worst because there are those of us who will experience the worst of the worst and we have to be able to say doesn't matter. I'm standing strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10. For God has designated him, Christ Jesus, as the king priest who is over the priestly order of Melchizedek. And the author does this over and over in Hebrews because he's trying to get them to shift their thinking away from the Levitical priesthood. At this time in history, this temple was still standing. It's a very good chance that Believers in Jesus were still taking their little lamies to the temple. <laughs> Why? Why would they do that? Because they had always done that. Well, you have Jesus now. Yeah, but <laughs> sin today. I really should give an offering. That was the problem. So the author says the same thing over and over and over. Jesus is a different kind of high priest. He has a different way of doing things. Don't think about doing things the way the old covenant did it. So Jesus couldn't become our heavenly high priest while he was still on earth. He had to enter into his glorified body and present himself to the Father in the true tabernacle of heaven as the perfect and eternal sacrifice. In other words, Jesus had to be the perfect sacrifice before he could be the perfect high priest. And we can see this truth in Hebrews chapter 9. I'll start reading with verse 8 in the Passion Translation. Now the Holy Spirit uses the symbols of this pattern of worship. He's talking about the Levitical. He's a, it's, a, it's just a picture. <laughs> to reveal that the perfect way of holiness had not yet been unveiled. Nobody but the high priest could ever get anywhere near God and only once a year. For as long as the tabernacle stood, it was an illustration that pointed to our present time of fulfillment, demonstrating that offerings and animal sacrifices had failed to perfectly cleanse the conscience of the worshipper. They failed. They didn't take away sin, didn't make them new creations. It didn't give them eternal life. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't. And yet the church wants to adopt law-keeping to enhance their salvation. It's the same kind of thing. If you're going to add a lamb, well, then you have to add the Ten Commandments. Now, we wouldn't think of telling the Christian that they needed to bring a lamb for slaughter. But the church is very good at telling the church you need to keep the Ten Commandments as a requirement, not as fruit. New Testament says, keeping the Ten Commandments, don't even think about it. Just live in love. The fruit of love will look like obedience. (laughs) It'll look like that's what you're trying to do, but you won't be trying to do it. It'll be Christ in you, living out His love toward others. We'll be obedient without even trying. That's the point. It's about believing. (laughs) Verse 10. For this old pattern of worship was a matter of external rules and rituals concerning food and drink and ceremonial washings, which was imposed upon us until the appointed time of heart restoration had arrived. The King James uses the phrase, the time of reformation. But I like this translation because the Reformation is all about heart restoration. Not about going back to the laws and trying to make yourself good and pleasing to God by keeping the laws. Years ago, I was a hairdresser. And at my little holiness church, there was this little old lady about 98 years old and she wanted a haircut. <laughs> she never wore her hair down. She's a holiness lady. So <laughs> so she always wore her hair up. So I went to her house to cut her hair. She let me cut like a half an inch off. And it was like down the middle of her back. <laughs> and then when I was doing it for her, doing it up and drying it, she says, don't make me look like a little old lady. My powers only worked so far. <laughs> she was worried that that half an inch I took off of her glory, would somehow be displeasing to her father. You see, that's what the law does. It says, you're disqualified, no glory for you. (laughs) And Jesus says, come unto me. I'll share my glory with you. What? Doesn't the Bible say he won't share his glory with anybody? Under the old covenant. But under the new, he gives it to us freely. He says, wear it, baby, wear it. <laughs> we have the very glory, the very manifest presence of God. That's what glory means, manifest presence. We have the manifest presence of Christ in us, and he just wants us to let it out. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so under the new covenant, through Christ, our hearts are once again completely one with God the Father. I don't have to worry about losing my glory or losing his glory or disappointing my father. It's all about Jesus and what he has done. Verse 11. But now the anointed one has become the king priest of every wonderful thing that has come and everything that has come is wonderful through him <laughs> for he serves in a greater more perfect heavenly tabernacle not made by men. And he has entered once and forever into the holiest sanctuary of all, not with the blood of animal sacrifices, but with the sacred blood of his own sacrifice. He alone has made our salvation secure forever. It's an eternal salvation. It's not until you blow it, salvation. It's eternal salvation. Nothing we can do can undo what Jesus has done. Verse 13. Under the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer were sprinkled on those who were defiled and effectively cleansed them outwardly from their ceremonial impurities. It never cleansed them inwardly. It never gave them a new heart or a new spirit, which is always what God wanted and had planned for humanity. Verse 14. Yet how much more will the sacred blood of Messiah thoroughly cleanse our consciences? For by the power of the eternal spirit, he has offered himself to God as the perfect and complete sacrifice that now frees us from our dead works to worship and serve the living God. I added the word complete (laughs) because when you look at the Greek, it means that too, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Nothing needs to be added to it. It's perfect and you can't add anything to it. (laughs) It's the perfect and complete sacrifice. Because it's perfect and complete, this is why we can stop bringing our dead works to God. What are dead works? It doesn't imply evil works, (laughs) it doesn't imply sins, what does it imply? The stuff they did in the Old Covenant, things that never brought life, keeping the Ten Commandments as a way to ingratiate yourself to God, that's a dead work. They never got life, that's never what God wanted, He wanted who we are in Christ to live through us so that it looks like we're doing that. So dead works are us doing the right things or even the religious things in order to become right with God again, quote unquote, which is old covenant thinking. Under the old covenant, you were always in or out. I behaved today, I'm in. I didn't behave today, I'm out. And the things we do to try to make God like us are dead works. For me, it would be, I will fast, Lord. I'll fast three days this week if you will promise not to be mad at me (laughs) because I failed to be perfect again. All kinds of religious works are dead works that accomplish nothing in and of themselves. It is Jesus and only Jesus that makes us right with God, right with our Father. Only Jesus. And it's only Jesus that keeps us right with God. (laughs) Not our good behavior. Keeping the Ten Commandments is not what keeps me right with God. Jesus keeps me right with God. (laughs) All the time, because he's done everything that was needed to be done to cleanse my heart and my spirit and all that I am. He cleaned me completely up. I had nothing to do with it. All I had to do was believe him. (laughs) And then say, thank you very much. (laughs) The Father has given us a brand new heart and a brand new spirit, and then he married himself to us so that we would be permanently one spirit with him forever. We really, really are new creations in Christ Jesus. And neither our new spirit nor our new heart will ever, ever, ever become dirty or unclean when we fall short of our Father's glorious, perfection. And that's because we are in Christ. <laughs> he doesn't just live in me. I live in him. And he can never become unclean. So, sin would have to go through Jesus <laughs> to make me unclean, and that's not possible. When Jesus touched an unclean leper, the unclean leper became clean, (laughs) showing us that Jesus cannot be contaminated by our sins and failures. He's always clean and acceptable to the Father. And so are we. But only because we're in Him. (laughs) And He's not gonna let us out. (laughs) Now, when we do fall short of our Father's glorious perfection, and especially if we love Jesus, and especially if we've been in church for a really long time, our conscience will usually holler pretty loudly at us when we fail to be perfect. (laughs) Our conscience will tell us, oh, you're unacceptable. Oh, you got dirty. You need to get that sin confessed and put under the blood. Right? No. (laughs) no you don't it's already done that's right (laughs) that's a really dumb old covenant thing to think but i can't tell you how many years i kept trying to get that sin under the blood (laughs) never knowing that my sin was never even imputed unto me Our sins are not covered over by the blood of Jesus. They're destroyed by the blood of Jesus. (laughs) Just like the leprosy was instantly destroyed when it came in contact with Jesus. So our sins are instantly destroyed and rendered powerless to separate us from our Jesus. Under the new covenant, all of our sins are removed from us at the time we receive Christ. And then our future sins are not imputed unto us because they have already been paid for. The word impute means to transfer legal responsibility for. God says he imputed our sins, all of our sins to Jesus. God legally transferred all of our sins to Jesus. Can he now legally transfer any of them back? No, (laughs) Jesus paid it in full. Nothing can come back on us. Even if we're really guilty, even if we really did fall short, even if we did mess up big, is that sin imputed to us? No, because the father knows the end from the beginning and all of our sins were legally transferred to Jesus. And none of them can be transferred back. Now, It isn't that sin doesn't happen from time to time in the life of a believer. But sin has become powerless against us spiritually. The law of the spirit of life in, where are we? In Christ Jesus. That's where we live and move and have our being. We are in Christ Jesus. And his law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. That means sin can no longer bring us death. Sin can no longer bring us separation sin could no longer kill us. (laughs) So sin no longer has the power to separate us from our Father and our Jesus. We are permanently one spirit with the Lord. Now it appears that the believing Jews of the book of Hebrews had the same kind of struggle with this concept that many believers still do today. Only one sacrifice only one sacrifice for everyone, <laughs> for all sin, forever. You sure I don't need a lamb? <laughs> See, the Hebrew believers are like, got to bring them just to hedge our bets. What if Jesus' sacrifice isn't? Because they had lambs constantly. Constantly, lambs for every. Can you imagine how expensive it was to sin? <laughs> <laughs> that alone would be a deterrent. I can't afford to sin today. <laughs> but this once forever concept was totally foreign to the Jews of that day. Under the old covenant, every sin needed a confession. See, they didn't just bring a little lamby and throw it in at, at the priest. They had to lay their hands on it and confess their sins and symbolically transfer the guilt to the lamb and then the lamb would die in our place. That's how we understand what it is that Jesus did because he set us all up with all these pictures from the old covenant. So besides the individual lamb, on top of that, and all the lambs that were had to be killed morning and evening, every year the high priest would present a special sacrifice on behalf of all people, all of Israel I should say, on the day of atonement. And if the sacrifice was accepted, In other words, if the red ribbon tied to the scapegoat turned white, then they knew that all of their sins had been counted as removed from them, and they could expect their names to be written in God's book of life for one whole year. (laughs) I don't think that's a better deal. (laughs) Do we want to go back? No, we don't. Jesus is better, which is the whole theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. And we can see this in Hebrews 10, beginning with verse 9, and then in verse 18, again in the Passion Translation. And then he said, God, I will be the one to go and do your will. So by being the sacrifice that removes sin, He abolishes animal sacrifices and replaces that entire system with the new covenant. A lot of the church said, okay, Jesus is good enough to be the sacrifice, but we have to keep the laws. Even back then, it was hard for them to get it. The whole system has failed. Don't use any of it for your salvation. Lots of good information. Yes, God will use it to speak to you. Are we under the laws? No. Why? Because they failed. (laughs) Verse 10. By God's will, we have been purified, have been purified, and made holy once and for all through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus, the Messiah. I like to think of the word holy as simply being understood as his. The word holy simply means to be set apart. Not from the world. But to Jesus! (laughs) We're his! We're his! And as he is, we is too! We is what he is! (laughs) As he is right now at the right hand of the Father, so are we. We are his completely and perfectly. We are his perfect Yes, and complete bride. We are his dearly loved children. We are his body and his house and his priest and his treasure that was once hidden in the dirt. (laughs) We are his, his people, his beloved. We are his. And if we are his, then we are holy forever. We can never be separated from who he is. We're one. Verse 11, yet everyday priests still serve, ritually offering the same sacrifices again and again. Sacrifices that can never take away sin's guilt. Now, this verse specifically refers to the Jewish priests that were still working in the temple that was still standing at that time in Jerusalem. But we could also let this verse speak to us regarding our feeble attempts to offer God sacrifices that can never take away sin's guilt. For example, believers often try to offer to God their promises to do better in exchange for forgiveness. I promise I'll do better next time, Jesus. Please don't be mad at me. Let me come back into the Holy of Holies. Wrong thinking. Old Covenant. Sometimes they offer God their sorrow and regret as proof that they have come to their senses and they are now ready to receive his forgiveness. Too late, he already gave it to you. (laughs) Some simply beg and plead for mercy, hoping God will have pity on them. Because of their begging, they hope he will forgive them. Again, too late. Some even offer God a chance to play, let's make a deal. (laughs) You tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. Whatever you want, God, let's make a deal. Just so I can come back into your presence. Old covenant. All of those shenanigans are worthless. (laughs) God has already granted us forever forgiveness based solely on the perfect sacrifice of His Son. Now when we fall short of our Father's glorious perfection, it's only our conscience that needs to be cleansed. And it is only cleansed by remembering His sacrifice, not by us trying to make new ones. (laughs) There's only one sacrifice for sin, and it's Jesus. And we can see this in the next verse, verse 12. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered the one supreme sacrifice for sin for all time, he sat down on the throne at the right hand of God, waiting until all his whispering enemies are subdued and turned into his footstool. And by this one perfect sacrifice, he made us perfectly holy and complete for all time. It's a finished work. I'm complete in my spirit. I'm holy in my spirit. The real me looks good. (laughs) I look like Jesus. (laughs) Verse 15. The Holy Spirit confirms this to us by this scripture. Well, the Lord says, afterwards I will give them this covenant and I will embed my laws into their hearts and fasten my word to their thoughts. We're going to come back to this. I want to finish this portion of scripture first. And then he says, I will not ever again remember their sins and lawless deeds. Really? Never? <laughs> no, he can't. He's legally transferred the responsibility for payment to Jesus. And Jesus has already paid it not ever again will he remember our sins and lawless deeds against us because they're already paid for by the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid the entire debt for the entire world. Verse 18. So if our sins have been forgiven and forgotten, why would we ever need to offer another sacrifice for sin? Good question. (laughs) We don't. (laughs) That's the writer's point. We will never need to do something to get God to forgive us or to cleanse us because he already has through his once for all supreme sacrifice. The book of Hebrews was written particularly for the Jewish believers in Jesus. And these scriptures were meant to help them to let go of making constant confessions and sacrifices at the temple every time they fell short of God's glorious perfection. They didn't and we don't need to constantly confess our failings to God because one, he already knows about them. (laughs) And two, he's already forgiven them through the blood of Jesus. So what do we do then when we fall short of God's glorious perfection? We have to choose to believe the truth of God's word and the witness of the indwelling Holy Spirit that bears witness to the truth of his word, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, no matter what, no matter how poorly we may act in the natural. Our Father and our Jesus and our Holy Spirit will never, 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 never leave us, nor forsake us. I was told once that if I went to the bar, Jesus would wait outside for me. (laughs) even if you're only drinking diet coke because jesus doesn't go to bars really (laughs) people have gotten saved in bars (laughs) but that's the old covenant thinking our father never leaves us even if we have terrible temper tantrums he never forsakes us not ever so but we have to choose to believe it We have to choose to believe that God is working in us and through the Holy Spirit to cause us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Because he will never make us. (laughs) He works in us to cause us to want to do the things that please him. So we don't ignore our failures. We address them through the grace given to us through the Holy Spirit. Because when we remember, like we did today, we remember the blood of Jesus that has washed away every sin. When we remember that, the guilt leaves because he's already paid for it. We're not on the hook to pay for our mistakes. I'm gonna go back to verse 16 real quick here. After, it says this, "'Afterwards I will give them this covenant, "'and I will embed my laws into their hearts "'and fasten my word to their thoughts.'" The author is not talking about the born-again Jewish believers memorizing scripture (laughs) and hiding it in their hearts. Most Jewish men had already done that extensively. They memorized by heart the first five books, and some of them even the prophets. So most of the Old Testament, many of them knew by heart, even the ones that couldn't read. The author isn't saying you need to read the word more. (laughs) Reading the word is good, yes. But that's not what he's talking about. It is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that he's talking about. Jesus had told the Jewish believers that they needed a righteousness that would exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Because he said that, that means there's no righteousness that they could bring by themselves. The law-keeping could never bring them true righteousness. Jesus says, if you want to be righteous, it has to exceed what you can manufacture on your own. So the writer is not talking about memorizing the scripture and writing those things on their heart. He's talking about the convincing power of the Holy Spirit. It is, if we live by love, we'll automatically keep the Ten Commandments without ever even thinking of a Ten Commandment because we're always thinking love. Now, People want to use these kind of scriptures to tell Christians today, no, see, you need to be memorizing the scriptures and the Ten Commandments and all that stuff in the Old Testament. That's what you need to be doing. We are not free from the law. And they'll use this kind of scripture to make that declaration. It's not true. One of the things they often bring up is Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. And they say, well, Jesus said, Never mind what Paul said. Jesus said, (laughs) think not that I am come to destroy the law. They say, see, or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Everything, everything back there pointed to Jesus. (laughs) They just couldn't see it back there. (laughs) The whole thing was to help us understand what Jesus was going to do. So Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets through his life, the way he lived his life. He kept it perfectly. He's the only one who did. And then he took the responsibility to pay for our death because we couldn't keep the law. Through both of these, his life and his death, he brought the original plan of salvation into effect. The old covenant was just a temporary part of preparing the whole world for Jesus. (laughs) Jesus came to reverse the curse that was enacted by Adam and Eve and to dispose of the entire old covenant system because it never worked. Because it never worked, it's no longer needed. (laughs) Everything is fulfilled in Christ. But some still want to argue that as long as heaven and earth are still here, then the Mosaic law is still in force. Because they believe that is what Jesus actually said. But what they don't realize is what the phrase heaven and earth actually meant to the Jews of that period. Until Christ came, there was only one place on earth where heaven and earth met. And that was in the Jewish temple. And that's what this scripture is referring to. The Jewish men referred to the temple that was still standing at that time as heaven and earth because it was the only place where God lived on earth. So what Jesus actually said was that he would fulfill the law in its entirety and that the old covenant temple and its laws would actually pass away. And they had to pass away because under the new covenant, we don't need a temple. (laughs) We are the temple. (laughs) We don't need a physical Holy of Holies. We live in the spiritual Holy of Holies where our God in his fullness permanently dwells with us. And we don't need an earthly high priest because we have the true and real spiritual high priest who is the mediator of this new covenant with its new laws. The new covenant does have new laws, not old laws. In chapter 7 of Hebrews, the writer explains that the law is actually attached to its priesthood. God gave the law so that the priesthood could enact it. All of the sacrifices are attached to all of the rules. Why? Because the rules were going to get broken. Those two are one unit. The priesthood included the laws. So Hebrews 7 verse 11 says, the people were given the law under the system of priests from the tribe of Levi, but no one could be made spiritually perfect through the system of priests. So there was a need for another priest to come. That's where Jesus comes in. I mean the priest of Melchizedek, not Aaron. And when a different kind of priest comes, then the law must be changed too. Each priesthood has his own rules. That's why you can't add Jesus to the old covenant. Jesus has his own covenant, his own rules. That's what covenant is. It was the terms of their agreement. Jesus made an agreement with God the Father on our behalf. <laughs> It's his priesthood, and it works by his laws. So the old covenant laws are no longer in effect because God has replaced the old covenant priesthood with Jesus and the new order. With a priest that one will live forever, (laughs) and a priest who requires his own laws. So what laws could the writer be referring to? The book of hebrew doesn't answer that question directly but judging from the strong emphasis on faith (laughs) hebrews 11 everything's by faith (laughs) i would guess it to be the law of faith and the law of christ which is love also because the apostle paul pretty much tells us the same thing in galatians 5 verse 6 in the passion translation when you're placed into the anointed one and joined to him Circumcision and religious obligations can benefit you nothing. Nothing. (laughs) All that matters now is living in the faith that is activated and brought to perfection by love. The new laws of the new covenant is the law of faith working through the law of love. These are laws not of demand, but laws of supply. Under the new covenant, the laws of God are the laws of supply. The old covenant, the laws demanded that people manufacture external goodness and righteousness. But under the new covenant of grace, our Father supplies us with everything we need for life and godliness. All we do is exercise our faith and take hold of what our Father's grace has so richly provided. Everything in our Father's kingdom is available to us through faith. In fact, it's our kingdom. We are co heirs with Christ. It's our kingdom too. <laughs> we can see this in Romans chapter 3. I'll begin reading verse 21. But now, independently of the law, the righteousness of God is tangible and brought to light through Jesus the Anointed One. This is the righteousness that the scriptures prophesied would come. It is God's righteousness made visible through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and now all who believe in him receive that gift for there is really no difference between us he's talking about Gentiles and Jews there's no difference between us For we have all sinned and are in need of the glory of God we are all in need of the manifested presence of God in us yet through his powerful declaration of acquittal God freely gives away his righteousness that's crazy (laughs) he gives his righteousness away his gift of love and favor now cascades over us all because Jesus the anointed one has liberated us from the guilt punishment and power of sin Jesus's God-given destiny was to be the sacrifice to take away sins not just cover them up and now he is our mercy seat because of his death on the cross we come to him for mercy For God has made provision for us to be forgiven by faith in the sacred blood of Jesus. This is the perfect demonstration of God's justice. Because until now, he had been so patient, holding back his justice out of his tolerance for us. So he covered over the sins of those who lived prior to Jesus' sacrifice. And when the season of tolerance came to an end, there was only one possible way for God to give away his righteousness and still be true To both his justice and his mercy to offer up his own son so now because we stand on the faithfulness of jesus god declares us righteous in his eyes where then is there room for boasting do our works bring god's acceptance not at all (laughs) it was not our works of keeping the law, but our faith in his finished work that makes us right with God. I like this verse also in the King James, which says, where is the boasting? When it's all a gift, there's no reason to boast. It's excluded by what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. The new covenant law is faith and love provided for us through the Holy Spirit verse 28 so our conclusion is this god's wonderful declaration that we are righteous in his eyes can only come when we put our faith in christ and not in keeping the law so when the apostle paul refers to the law of faith what he's saying is that's now the law of god you can only have right standing with god by faith in christ And that's the law, it's not gonna change. (laughs) You can't get blessed by keeping the law. You can only be blessed by faith in Christ. We can't make ourselves acceptable to God by keeping the law. We are only acceptable and righteous by faith in the blood of Jesus. The only thing God will now accept is faith in the finished works of Jesus. That is the basis of how the whole kingdom of God functions. It functions only on faith in the finished works of Jesus. But this faith changes everything. Through faith in Christ, we have become new creations who live in God's kingdom right now. It's not something we get when we die. We are invited to live in accordance with the laws of grace and truth through love and faith. Through Jesus, we are already seated in heavenly places and we cannot be extricated for any reason. We sit with Christ. Because there is a change in the priesthood, there has also been a change in the law. Jesus isn't the mediator of the old covenant. The old covenant and its laws could only ever demand righteousness. It couldn't provide it. So now we are not under the demands of the old covenant because we are under our great high priest and his laws of the new covenant. And all of his laws, all of his laws are laws of supply. Laws that work from the inside because the Holy Spirit works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. We have nothing to fear from God when we fall short of his glorious perfection because we have already been forever forgiven and declared innocent and righteous in the eyes of our Father. The blood of Jesus has opened the way for us to have boldness. Isn't that crazy? To boldly come to God when you've just blown it? (laughs) because of Jesus we can come boldly before the throne of grace not the throne of wrath not the throne of of anger but the throne of grace boldness even though that means you have to speak frankly God, I blew it. Sorry about that. How do you want me to fix this? (laughs) That's it. The blood of Jesus has opened the way for us to have boldness to enter the very presence of God and never leave, even if we've just failed. He's our dad. And no matter what, he loves us and accepts us because we are his. We're his. And we are his completely holy and righteous children. We're his. In closing, I want to read... Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. This kind of just sums up the whole thing. And now we are brothers and sisters in God's family because of the blood of Jesus. And he welcomes us to come right into the most holy sanctuary in the heavenly realm, boldly and with no hesitation. For he has dedicated a new life-giving way for us to approach God through the Holy Spirit. For just as the veil was torn in two, Jesus' body was torn open to give us free and fresh access to him. And since we now have a magnificent king priest to welcome us into God's house, we come closer to God and approach him with an open heart. I love this part. Fully convinced, fully convinced by faith that nothing will keep us at a distance from him because our hearts have been sprinkled with blood to remove impurity. And we have been freed from an an accusing conscience. And now we are clean, unstained, and completely and perfectly presentable to God inside and out. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, that there is nothing we can bring you To persuade you to be good to us. (laughs) You're already persuaded. There's nothing we can do to make up for our mistakes. You've already forgiven them. There's nothing we can do to make you love us more. You already love us more than we could ever imagine. Father God, we thank you for the new covenant. We thank you that Jesus, Jesus is our high priest. He's the high priest of a better covenant. It's not a covenant of demand. It's a covenant of supply. You have given us everything for life and godliness and for eternity through the blood of Jesus and for no other reason. Father God, I thank you that it is you that works in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. We thank you, Father God, that it's all about you and not about us. We thank you, Father God, that you made us your priority and have done all of this for us. We thank you, Father God, that we don't have to pay for it, and that we can't even try. We thank you, Father God, for our everlasting fellowship in Jesus' name. Amen.